Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brennan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 146th episode of the Nauticast titled The Gilded Age, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Sansa 8, in which Tywin and the Tyrells congratulate each other on, um, what are they? Do exactly. Oh, yeah. Doing barely nothing at all. And Sansa <laughs> finally gets out of her betrothal, which is a good thing. Is that, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I'm, I'm a little bit lost here. By the end of the chapter, it's not clear. But you know it's going to be kind of an infuriating chapter when we have to give credit to Littlefinger of Ugh. all people. You know it's going to be frustrating. A lot of fun, but frustrating. Very fun. Very frustrating. Yeah. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good description. Okay. Thank you, for everyone, for listening. We'll be uh, back for next week. For, that sums it up. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Heal of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the other red woman, the other red woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, Word of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gem that was promised. Lord Jake assisted to the Hand of the King. Ladies and Lear, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High, his Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Lawrence, Prince of Dorne. Kelly, Word of the Eastern Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs. Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds. The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Lady Stephanie. Lord Carlos. Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God. Sir Sorcedelica. Sugar Tit Stent, the Troctolite Warrior. Lord Pension for Nostalgia. Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stain, Ambassador of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, Haldover, the Waiter for T-Wow, A.A. Ron Damper, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Varp, the Overwork, Queenly Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion, the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kim and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Shirt, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob, Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Harren Hall, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal, Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Rigor Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Bone Way. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War in the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri State. Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bold, Champion of the Field, Good Times, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author and the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warness of the South, and Patron of Free Wheeling Bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate. Lord Kristoff of Irondale, Official Ice Master and Deliverer, the Valiant Pungent Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to his Quint Ginger, Sweet Love, Queen Anna. And our newest member of the Small Council, everyone give a warm welcome to Lord Russell H., who I actually believe did come up with the title, but I forgot to write here for this document. So welcome, Russell, to the Small Council, and thank you to all of our Not a Small Council patrons. 
Thank you, counselors, as always, and a special welcome to Russell. So glad to have you with us. Yeah, thank you so much. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Devils, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Frank B., the King's Justice on our small council, who asks, In Sansa 8, we get the anonymous badass who goes down swinging for Stannis, thundering to the entire false court of Lannisters and Tyrells that they're foul, sinful slugs that will be purged in flame. Obviously, he's the winner for this question, but who is your second favorite completely anonymous character in the series? So what do you think about that, Jeff? Who is a, who is a character that does not get named that still stands out in your memory for some reason? So I'm going to totally cheat here because there's actually two unnamed <laughs> characters from this chapter. There's the one guy who calls for basically says that that Stannis is the one true king and Joffrey is a vile slug and all the things that Frank said. But there's another guy who says there's going to be a scouring fire that's going to come and cleanse the court clean. And then one of the same two guys also says something about the about when Joffrey's like there's like chopping and chopping and chopping with his arm. I was like, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. And he accidentally like, cho- like chops his arm and it's like, ha! Look at him. He's like laughs at, at Joffrey. He's like, the throne denies him. The throne denies him. So uh, that is that is a bit of a cheat there. So I'm, I'm trying to think of someone that's beyond just those these two characters here in a, in, in a Clash of Kings. Um, hmm. That's a good question. What do you think? I'll, I'll turn it over to you as, as I ponder my answer a little bit further. Is there a character like that for you who is, you know, an anonymous badass who goes down swinging for someone <laughs> or it says something badass in, in the... Uh, in, Not in exactly the, in, an anonymous yeah. badass, but in this in, in the same kind of court open, you know, public court function way, there's the the Locke character when Davos goes to White Harbor, who has the nerve to say out loud what everyone's thinking that Roose is, is clearly a problem, but we can deal with him. Ramsey is a variable that we were never prepared for and can't handle. And I like I like that because it presents the kind of cold, calculating face of the Northern Lords that I really like, in that they are sincerely outraged about the Red Wedding. They are sincerely loyal about the Starks, but their main problem with Ramsay is that really is that he's uncouth and that if it was, it was just <laughs> Roos, they might be able to make a deal with him because Roos is frightening mm-hmm. but subtle and, you know, his whole uh, uh, a quiet land, a peaceful people, that, that whole shtick. You know, there are a lot of northern lords that we like more than Roos Bolton who would probably be fine with that too. There's a reason he says like, oh, the Umbers, they're also into the first night. He's probably not wrong about that. Like, I think that's that's a realistic way of presenting the Northern Lords. And I like that that Locke character is there not to just be, you know, I love the, you know, like Wyla Manderly saying, we, the Starks protected us and took us in. I love that. But I also love the more calculating side of Northern politics. It's just like, Roos, okay, but Ramsey, no, 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 Ramsey misses with our day. Ramsey is un- unpleasant. We can't have that. It- yeah, that, that's a great point. And, and that does bring up to mind uh, when you, you talk about the Northern Lords. And for once, I'm going to talk about the small folk. You're talking about the, the nobility and, and I'm talking about the small folk here. I mean, we're we're taking each other's places here in the, in the podcast. But there's the uh, <laughs> there's there's the moment in uh, in, in Winterfell where, where Theon is is wandering up in, in the castle and he sees that someone has made like the the snowmen for all the Northern Lords. Right. Right. So you right. have like the enormous Wyman Manderly. You've got the one-armed, um, is it Harwood Stout? Uh, and then you have like Lord Locke and, and Roose Bolton, all, the, all these different characters. I just, I just love, uh, I love, love moments where the soldiers are taking the piss out of their commanders and making them into, into, into snowmen. And of course, as we talked about in our Grand Northern Conspiracy episode, that is a, uh, probably a fun bit of foreshadowing of, of these different lords being, not the Boltons, obviously, but the other lords being potentially snowmen, that is Jon Snow's bannermen come the future for the Winds of Winter and, and a Dream of Spring. But I, I like those moments as well, the kind of like, uh, you know, taking the piss out of, out of the leadership, so to speak. 
So thank you so much, Frank, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash ASOIAF, where you can get show notes for every episode, bonus Fever Dream episodes, free merch, and for our two highest tiers, access to the Nauta Slack, shoutouts every week, weekly minisodes, bonus episodes, like our upcoming full analysis of Zack Snyder's 2010 opus, Man of Steel. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I used to be one of those people on the internet who had fun raging against man of steel but you know now here at the end of my life as 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 an aged man lying in my bed waiting to die i can say there's there's a lot of things to appreciate about man of steel so i think that that i will i will have i will have nice things to say in that episode i will surprise you all i am looking forward to that surprise that's gonna be uh something else i mean i remember like that you having the same sort of experience when you rewatch watchmen when we did the uh the full experience we did that a couple months ago for uh, for that that patron. I mellowed significantly, ago. and as I've become <laughs> senile, you you may have noticed it was it was a very smooth transition into senility for me. I don't think anybody has quite realized it yet. It's gonna be fun. I think we're gonna have a lot of fun doing that one. And also, as a reminder, because if you have if you think that we are not doing enough Zack Snyder, well, boy, do I've got good news for you because we'll be doing a sauced slash drinking review of the new Justice League version uh, of the new version of Justice League, which Zack Snyder is releasing uh, on March 18th. We'll be doing that as a live cast on March 22nd. So after our Theon episode, we're taking a week off to do yet another Zack Snyder film. I know Emmett is so thrilled. I am especially thrilled to be doing so much work about the greatest auteur that currently exists and is doing film work in the United States in the year 2021. Still doing apparently fresh new got film leaked. work. Apparently got leaked to a I few people that. Justice League that like someone clicked on Tom and Jerry in the accident, which is just the the just the the, <laughs> mwah, the icing on top of this whole ridiculous saga. Let's let's spend a bunch of money to remake this movie and then accidentally release it instead of Tom and Jerry. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. I have loved every moment of this. God bless America and the internet, I guess. Too. Exactly. So, exactly. Ah, I love it. But enough about Patreon and Zack Snyder. Peace be upon his name. When we last checked in with Sansa Stark, she had nearly died several times before Dantus brought news that all was well. Tywin Lannister was here. God damn it. That does not seem all that well. Let's find out how things are going for King's Landing and Sansa Stark in the aftermath of the Battle of the Blackwater in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Sansa 8. The throne room was a sea of jewels, furs, and bright fabrics. Lords and ladies filled the back of the hall and stood beneath the high windows, jostling like fishwives on a dock. The denizens of Joffrey's court had striven to outdo each other today. Jalabarzo was all in feathers, a plumage so fantastic and extravagant that he seemed like to take flight. The high septon's crystal crown fired rainbows through the air every time he moved his head. At the council table, Queen Cersei shimmered in a cloth of gold, slashed in burgundy velvet, while beside her, Varys fussed and simpered like a lilac brocade. Moon Boy and Sir Dantos wore new suits of motley, clean as a spring morning. Even Lady Tanda and her daughters looked pretty in matching gowns of turquoise silk and vair, and Lord Giles was coughing into a square of scarlet silk trimmed with golden lace. King Joffrey sat above them all, amongst the blades and barbs of the Iron Throne. He was in crimson Samnite, his black mantle studded with rubies. On his head, his heavy golden crown. Tanned, rested, and ready. Joffrey is ready to run this kingdom right into the fucking ground. Sansa Stark pushes her way through the front of the nobles as trumpets blast, announcing Lord Tywin Lannister. The shit lord himself comes riding down the hallway and dismounts in front of the Iron Throne, all bedecked in shiny armor just like his horse. He seems so very 
very impressive. Everyone says so. The Lord of Cashley Rock made such an impressive figure that it was a shock when his destrier dropped a load of dung right at the base of the throne. Joffrey had to step gingerly around it as he descended to embrace his grandfather and proclaim him savior of the city. Sansa covered her mouth to hide a nervous smile. <laughs> Love that scene. No symbolism, we're moving on. Joffrey asked Tywin to take up the protectorate until the king comes of age, and Tywin accepts solemnly. Squires take off his armor, and Tywin sits at the small council table next to Cersei as his horse is led off to probably be shot. The ceremony resumes with more trumpets as the heroes of the Blackwater stride into the hall. The best seats are given to Lord Mace Tyrell, Sir Loras Tyrell, and Sir Garland Tyrell, who are all dressed in green velvet. Joffrey walks down the Iron Throne and greets them each by giving them gold chains or roses in soft yellow gold with the Lion of Lannister framed in red rubies. Joffrey, a Redditor, tells everyone the meaning of the very, very subtle symbolism behind the chain and ruby. The roses support the lion as the might of Highgarden supports the realm, proclaimed Joffrey. Anyways, do the Tyrells want anything else of Joffrey besides this stupid fucking necklace? Yes, they do. Loras wants to serve in the King's Guard to defend Joffrey. Joff brings Loras to his feet and plants a sloppy one on his cheek, telling him, sure, why not? Mace Tyrell pipes up and says he wants to join the small council due to his, um, uh, his, his loyalty. Yeah. Joffrey plants another sloppy one, this time on Mace, granting him his request. But then it's Garland Tyrell, him of the thick chest, broad shoulders, and handsome, though not as beautiful as Loras, as since points out, face. Your grace, Garland said when the king approached him. I have a maiden sister, Marjorie, the delight of our house. She was wed to Renly Baratheon, as you know, but Lord Renly went to war before the marriage could be consummated, so she remains innocent. Marjorie has heard tales of your wisdom, courage, and chivalry, and has come to love you from afar. I beseech you to send for her, to take her hand in marriage, and to wed your house to mine for all time. Joffrey does his best Hollywooding here, saying that he's promised to another and he's supposed to keep his word. Cersei does her own bit of B-movie acting, saying that the small council says Joff doesn't have to wed the daughter of a traitor. Marjorie is a much better candidate, and her father is very, very not a traitor. Everyone starts clamoring for Marjorie in the hall and against the traitor queen, but Joffrey says that he took a holy vow. The High Septon then steps forward and says, Actually, Ned Stark is a dirty fucking traitor, and you don't have to marry his dirty fucking traitor daughter. God says it's okay to do this thing, which I am saying as a very honest broker of the Lord's will. A tumult of cheering filled the throne room and cries of Marjorie, Marjorie, erupted all around her. Sansa leaned forward, her hands tight around the gallery's wooden rail. She knew what came next, but she was still frightened of what Joffrey might say, afraid that he would refuse to release her even now, when his whole kingdom depended upon him. She felt as though she was back again on the marble steps outside the great Sept of Baelor, waiting for her prince to grant her father mercy, and instead hearing him command Sir Ellen Payne to strike off his head. Please, she prayed fervently, make him say it, make him say it. Tywin stares at Joffrey, and Joffrey looks back sullenly, and then he helps Garland to his feet and says, he'll marry Marjorie, follow his heart, of the very non-traitorous Tyrell family. Sansa felt curiously lightheaded. I am free. She could feel eyes upon her. I, I must not smile, she reminded herself. The queen had warned her, no matter what she felt inside, the face she showed the world must look distraught. I will not have my son humiliated, Cersei said. Do you hear me? Yes, but but if I'm not to be the queen, what will become of me? Sansa asked. Well, that will be need to be determined. For the moment, you shall remain here at court, as our ward. I want to go home. The queen was irritated by that. You should have learned by now. None of us get the things that we want. 
I have those, Sansa thought. I am free of Joffrey. I will not have to kiss him, nor to give him my maidenhead, nor to bear him children. Let Marjorie Terrell have that let Marjorie Terrell have all that. Poor girl. But then everything starts returning to normal as the small council gets down to business, while Sansa tries to look very, very sad. Next bit of business is rewards for the Reach and Westerland's lords. Then comes the knights and soldiers who had distinguished themselves in the actual battle. The dudes who actually did the real shit. So weird how the guys who actually did the fighting were honored after the lords who did fuck all? Weird. Anyways, these guys get promoted to lordship or knighthood or get cool new gear or have the pleasure of having their sons become squires and pages to catch the rock. Fucking yikes. Then the captains of six Lannister ships that survived were thanked by Joffrey for the feat of surviving the wildfire. I guess that was something. Then we find out that Lancer Lannister is awarded the lordship of Derry. He's not able to actually accept the title due to how badly injured he is. Tyrion too wasn't there and may be dying. When the herald called Lord Peter Baelish, he came forth dressed in all shades of rose and plum, his cloak patterned with mockingbirds. She could see him smiling as he knelt before the Iron Throne. He looks pleased. Sansa had not heard of Littlefinger doing anything, especially heroic during the battle, but it seemed he was to be rewarded all the same. Kevin Lannister rises to his feet and announces that Littlefinger is taking ownership of Hall and will become Lord Paramount of the Trident, and that honor and titles will go to his sons and grandsons. Baelish japes that he'll have to go about finding a wife and sons and grandsons, and everyone laughs. Sansa wonders why Littlefinger was so happy, as, you know, the title and honor is vacant. Hall is not held by the Lannisters, and the River Lords were sworn to Rob. Hmm, yeah. That is a little strange, Sansa. Good eye. Uh, Sansa thinks Rob will beat Littlefinger if he has to, just like he beat the Lancers every single time. 600 new knights were made in this ceremony, and the three surviving slash present knights of the Kingsguard dub each and every one of them after they walked barefoot through King's Landing after the vigil at Baylor Sept. Sure enough, some of them had bloody feet, but they appear proud to Sansa. This part of the ceremony takes a very long time and everyone grows wrestles, especially Joffrey, but the work is not done. Next, the captives are brought in. High lords and noble knights come into the chamber, three of whom are named for the first time and will feature prominently in A Feast for Crows. Red Ronna Conneting, R. Rain Waters, and Sir Bonifer Hasty. But there are hundreds of captives in total. If they had switched sides during the battle, they only had to swear for Joffrey, but the ones who had fought to the bitter end for Stannis had to say something in front of the Iron Throne. If they begged for forgiveness and to be loyal, Joffrey would welcome them back and restore them to their lands and titles. If they didn't, though, a handful remained defiant, however. Do not imagine this is done, boy, warned one, the bastard son of some floor or another. The Lord of Light protects King Stannis now and always. All your swords and all your scheming shall not save you when his hour comes. Your hours come now. Joffrey beckoned to Sir Ellen Payne to take the man out and strike his head off. But no sooner had that one been dragged away than the knight of Salamian, with a fiery heart and a surcoat, shouted out, Stannis is the true king! A monster sits the Iron Throne, an abomination born of incest. Sir Kevin warns this knight to shut up, but the knight ain't about that. The knight raised his voice and said, Joffrey is the black worm eating the heart of the realm. Darkness was his father and death his mother. Destroy him before he corrupts you all. Destroy them all, queen whore and king worm, vile dwarf and whispering spider, the false flowers. Save yourselves! One of the gold cloaks knocked the man off his feet, but he continued to shout, The scouring fire will come! King Stannis will return! Joffrey jumps to his feet, screaming for this man to die as he chops with his hand over and over again, but then he cuts himself when he makes a chopping motion with his hand. He starts crying for his mommy, and then the knight wrestles the spear from the gold cloak and uses it to get back to his feet. The throne denies him, he cried. He is no king. 
Cersei runs to Joffrey, but Tywin doesn't move. Instead, he raises a finger and Sir Marantrain comes forward and like a fucking villain, drives the sword right through the man as he screams, no king! One last time. God bless. Joffrey falls into Cersei's arms as the maesters come forward and the man's body is dragged off. Sansa wonders if the ceremony will be over, but Tywin orders things to proceed. Those who want to ask for pardons can do so. Tywin then moves to the Iron Throne and seats himself and seats himself on one of the steps. It takes the rest of the day for the ceremony to conclude, and Sansa is exhausted by the time she gets back to her room. Despite the exhaustion, she is joyous at the thought of being free from Joffrey. Oh, gods, be good. He did it. He put me aside in front of everyone. When a serving girl brought her supper, she almost kissed her. There was, there was hot bread and fresh churned butter, a thick beef soup, capon and carrots and peaches and honey. Even the food tastes sweeter, she thought. When it's dark, Sansa gets into a heavy cloak and walks over to the godswood. Osmond Kettleblack was guarding the pathway to the godswood, and Sansa tries very hard to seem sad as she passes by. Instead, he leers at her, and she feels that she wasn't convincing, which... <laughs> at the godswood, Dantos is waiting for her, and she sees that he looks miserable. Why does he look miserable? Joffrey had put Sansa aside, after all. He took her in. Oh, Jonko, my poor Jonko, you don't understand. They've <laughs> scarcely begun. Her heart sank. What, what do you mean? The <laughs> queen will never let you go. Never. You're, you're too valuable as a hostage. And, and Joffrey's really, he's still the king. Yeah, yeah, the king. If he wants you to his bed, he will have you. Only now it'll be uh, bastards he plants your womb instead of trueborn sons. No, Sansa said, shocked. He let me go. He. Dantos then very normally and very healthily then kisses Sansa's ear and tells her to be brave. But there's good news. The plan is in motion. They have the day when they're getting out of Dodge. When? At Joffrey's wedding feast. Amidst all the people and all the festivities, Sansa will be forgotten. And that's when they're leaving. But that's quite a ways away, Sansa says. Yes, but Sansa needs to be a little more patient. And Dantos has a gift for her. Sir Dantos fumbled in his pouch and drew out a silvery spiderweb, dangling it between his thick fingers. It was a hair net of fine spun silver. The strands so thin and delicate, the net seemed to weigh no more than a breath of air when Sansa took it in her fingers. Small gems were set wherever two strands crossed, so dark they drank the moonlight. What stones are these? Black? Amethyst? Remember? A shy? The rarest kind? A deep, a deep true purple by daylight? It's very lovely, Sansa said, thinking. It's a ship I need, though, not a net for my hair. Lovelier than you know, sweet child. It's magic, you see. It's justice, you hold. It's vengeance for your father. Dantos leaned close and kissed her again. It's home. <laughs> and that is the synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Sansa 8. Yeah, uh, these Sansa chapters have been among my favorites from the book, and I'm genuinely sad to be leaving them. Leaving her, at least for until the next book. What do you think, sir? Well, I'm genuinely sad to be leaving behind your wonderful Danto's voice. I can't wait to get back to it in Storm of Swords. We'll be there. So, San of course, Sansa's story in A Clash of Kings started with Joffrey's birthday party, and hardly anybody came. Why would they? The fledgling Lannister regime seemed to be hanging by a thread. Sansa's story in A Clash of Kings ends on the opposite note. Now the Lannisters are on top, now everybody shows up to Joffrey's party. Sansa 8 is a riot of fancy clothes and grand proclamations, every detail designed to establish that this is the face of righteous authority, the chain of being in place once more. But Sansa knows, and George shows us, 
how all of this is a performance, a farce. Even victory is a shadow on a wall. You said it so well. And something that strikes me about this chapter is how it stands in contrast to our Blackwater chapters. All those chapters that we've been, we were so excited to cover and we're still excited to have, have covered it a couple weeks ago. Uh, of course, it's supposed to be totally different than all of those battle chapters as the battle is over and concluded with the Lannister slash Tyrell victory. Boo! But on another level, the Battle of the Blackwater revealed the true face of the nobility. From the arrogant overconfidence of Sir Emery Florin in Davos III, to the cruel, childish brutality of Joffrey in Tyrion XIII, to Cersei losing her shit and hope and making sure that if she goes down, everyone goes down in Sansa VI, to then the betrayal of Mandan Moore in Tyrion XIV, to the casual cruelty of Cersei, the drunken slobbering stories and kisses of Dantos, and the twin faces of Sandor Clegane from Sansa VII. In a way, what we saw at the Blackwater was Sandor's burned and scarred face, the exposed brutality and cruelty. But here in Sansa 8, the beautiful face is back. The clothes, the pageantry, the ceremony, shy knights, high lords, beautiful ladies. The ability has put back on its outward face after the Blackwater exposed it raw. This is the way that the aristocracy sees itself, or at the very least, wants everyone else to see itself. However, the Blackwater and I think the Greater War of the Five Kings has shown permanent cracks in the facade. And even here, amidst the beauty, the ceremony, the the mask slips and the cruelty comes out. I think that's brilliant. That's exactly what is being orchestrated here is a cover up of everything that's pretty much happened in the book, especially, you know, climaxing with the Battle of Blackwater and putting a different face on everything. A Clash of Kings has been a story told in bright bursts of color, and this chapter is no exception. Every visual detail in the throne room is eye-popping. George doesn't write it this way just to grab the reader's attention. It fits what's happening in the scene. Everyone is showing off for each other. The royal court is united in a common goal. Acting like this was always obviously the rightful royal court, and anyone who said otherwise was (laughs) always obviously a traitor. This is how the Lannisters reaffirm their power. We might like to think that there is some platonic core of righteous leadership out there, and then the surface accoutrements reflect that. In truth, it works the other way around. All we can access is the surface, and then we project the substance into it. Everyone is dressed in their Sunday best because that's what being in charge looks like. If enough people agree on that, you're in charge. Image and reality are intertwined. So what if Jalabarzo is still in exile and will remain so forever? Today he looks like a bird in flight. Who cares if the High Septon was bought and paid for by Tyrion and that Cersei will have him smothered in his sleep? Today, his crystal crown transforms sunlight into the rainbow of the Seven. Even Giles Rosby's coughing has a gilded edge to it today. He's spitting up phlegm into a square of scarlet silk to honor Lannister colors, and probably also to hide the blood. (laughs) All the world is a stage, and as Tywin himself says, no one is truly free. We are imprisoned by performance, the eye of the beholder. Maturation isn't about accessing pure truth. We still haven't figured out how to do that. Rather, it's about understanding the nature of the deceit. How are you being lied to, and why? Ki bono, who benefits from the lie? Something I noticed on reread is that Sansa keeps comparing the royal court to less fancy folks. The lords and ladies are, quote, jostling like fishwives on a dock. They cheered as lustily as cutthroats at a cockfight. (laughs) Sansa is beginning to realize that all people are just people. By and large, they behave in similar ways. 
There's no inherent property of the lords and ladies that makes them different than the fishwives or the cutthroats. All that changes is the context, because context is all there actually is to power. The dock becomes the throne room. The cockfight becomes the struggle over royal betrothals, a kind of metaphorical cockfight. But human nature itself stays constant. That consistency makes us predictable, and that predictability makes us easy to manipulate. As you read this chapter, you gradually realize that almost everything that happens in it has been worked out beforehand. Sansa knows enough now to understand that when the lords and ladies cheer for Marjorie to be their new queen, they are, quote, like a pack of trained dogs. <laughs> None of them actually care or really know anything about Marjorie as an individual. This is merely the public performance of power. The decisions have already been made, yet in a sense they don't exist until the court publicly affirms them, even though the court had no part in those decisions. And that's the head-spinning nature of political power. It's an Ouroboros. Who is truly in charge of this room? It's hard to say. She started to see through the optics of things and is now seeing the substance. And that substance is not great, Bob. One can think of Sansa's first chapter when she was enamored with the chivalrous Barristan Selmy and the beautiful Renly Baratheon in his forest green doublet. Mm-hmm. Or we can look back at the hands turning, the glorious banners, the coats of arms, the armor itself, great names that Sansa saw when she, vis- when she visited the list with Jane Poole and Septa Mordain. Sansa's journey has been one where she's moving beyond the surface level beauty and seeing what lies underneath of that. And on the same token, Sansa is getting a front row seat to the optics game and how it's played. And it, admittedly, and I hate to you know give them this, but it's being played really, really well here by the Lancers and the Tyrells. Yeah, it's bullshit, but it's baffling the audience with bullshit and projecting strength. I think that's the greater purpose of everyone acclaiming Marjorie here in this scene more than anything else. It's projecting strength out to the outer world. The Lannisters and Tyrells have won the largest and most complex battle in the War of the Five Kings, and they are going to milk that victory for every political advantage possible, and that starts with the ceremony itself, and continues through the introduction of Shitlord himself, Tywin Lannister. Yes, as Sansa rushes into the throne room, the heralds trumpet the arrival of the winner of the Battle of Blackwater, once again the most powerful person in the world, Lord Tywin Lannister, who manages to literally outshine everyone in the room. His wealth and military might are on display, linked together into a single show of power. His burnished steel, his ruby-eyed lion, even his horse is wearing ornamentation. Even his horse is better than you. (laughs) <laughs> Tywin developed this style to counter what he saw as his father's weakness. The lion has awoken, as Harris Swift said of Tywin versus Tytos. As Sansa says, he makes for an impressive figure. The lion lord looks like he has everything under his control, so we may as well give him control of everything. And then, of course, Tywin's horse breaks the mood by taking a Joffrey-sized shit right in front of the Iron Throne. I love this. It's a perfect punchline, undercutting everything Tywin and the Tyrells are trying to get across. It stands in contrast to all the gold and flowers. It's a metaphor for everything the victors of the Battle of Blackwater are covering up in their first draft of history. The lie of Joffrey's parentage, the cruelty of Tywin's war-making in the Riverlands, the fact that it was the Tyrells who starved out the city in the first place... All of that has to be ignored in order to maintain the image, and that image is being exposed as literal horse shit. As George puts it, this is the horse's homage to Lannister power. 
Even putting aside the metaphor, this demonstrates that Tywin and the Tyrells cannot control everything. There are limits to stage managing, even for the best politicians. We're going to see that again later on in the chapter. Joffrey, quote, made a show of asking Tywin to become his hand and take over the government. That was decided beforehand. But he didn't plan on having to step around a pile of shit to do it. <laughs> Sansa smiles to see him so powerless. Even kings have to deal with the unexpected. Yeah, and this is my favorite moment of the chapter. I mean, there's a moment that I think is emotionally poignant for me, as we'll discuss later on. But this is just... The one moment of, of levity and comedy that I love here, because it's both the perfect punchline as well as a big, big wink from George in what is otherwise an utterly outrageous fucking chapter. I don't say that as someone who thinks that on the whole, it probably maybe would have been better for Westeros if Stannis had won on the Blackwater. And don't get me wrong, it's brilliant optics to have Joff ask Tywin to take on the role and for Tywin to accept and take his position at the table. But come the fuck on. Just look at the gall of it. Tywin, the greatest living monster in Westeros, who was responsible for the most civilian casualties and the utter devastation of an entire kingdom of the, of the Riverlands, is now named Lord Protector of Joffrey and Defender of the, of the Realm. And unlike Rob and Roos, like we talked about last week, when we were talking about how Rob had probably had no idea that Roos was doing war crimes, Tywin Lannister had specifically ordered it. All of the shit that we saw had been ordered by, that we saw in the Riverlands from Arya's chapters had been ordered by Tywin himself. Unleash Sir Gregor and send him before us with his reavers. Send forth Vargo Hoden and his free riders as well. And Sir Amory Lorch, each is to have 300 horse. Tell them I want to see the Riverlands afire from the god, from the god's eye to the Red Fork. We readers then have the advantage of experiencing what the official policy of Tywin Lannister was like in the Riverlands via Arya and Catelyn's chapters. And then we see that again in Jamie's chapters in A Storm of Swords. And his punishment? Eh, nothing here. He's Hand of the King, Lord Protector of the Realm, and of Joffrey and of the Realm. Gross. George, obviously, George wrote this part of the chapter to personally inflame my, or I guess the reader's overall sensibilities, and it works really well. Yet, he lampshades the whole thing with the horse shitting everywhere. As you say, it's absolute horseshit what's occurring in the throne room. It's kind of hilarious that the sweet part of the bittersweet equation of the horse uh, of this chapter is the horse shitting, but it's effective storytelling and shows us that George recognizes the cynicism of his own writing, maybe not of his own writing, but at least the cynicism of the scene, and wants us to know that he knows. And speaking of more political bullshit, Tywin didn't win at the Blackwater because of his own actions or even the actions of his own troops in the battle. Indeed, he won because of the people who are following him into the room. Next into the throne room after Tywin are his new best friends, the Tyrells of Highgarden. We are being shown the pyramid of power from the top down. The regime is trying to reboot the zeitgeist, start this epoch all over. I love that George doesn't tell us what the heralds actually say about these heroes of the Blackwater as they are escorted <laughs> into the throne room. Instead, he just tells us that the heralds are listing off everyone's noble deeds. And that clues the reader into how artificial it all is. The deeds themselves don't matter and are probably, probably being inflated or even invented. What matters is the declaration itself as a political act. Joffrey spouts this metaphor about the roses supporting the lion, and everyone knows he didn't come up with that. In the same way, if you like read a politician's social media profile and suddenly it gets all wordy and flowery, and you're like, that was not you. This was written for him. Sansa is no longer excited by this grandiose rhetoric in itself. She is beginning to see the purpose behind the words. 
This is our introduction to Lord Mace Tyrell and his second son, Garlin, but we don't learn much about them as individuals yet. Instead, we see them function as a unit, their practiced political performance in full flower, so to speak. Sansa can't help but compare Mace and Garland to Loras, the first Tyrell she and we met, and more beautiful than his past his prime father and his burlier older brother. But Sansa also sees what they have in common. The three dressed alike, in green velvet trimmed with sable. And now it comes, Sansa thinks as the Tyrells launch into their requests from the king. It lets us know that this is all staged. The Tyrells already have cemented their gains and are now putting them on display for everyone else. One by one, they show off their high-placed positions near the king. Loras will guard him, Mace will advise him, Marjorie will rule by his side as his queen. They will own Joffrey, balls to brain to bone, and everyone knows it. Everything they would have gotten from Renly, everything they seemed to lose in an instant when Stannis' shadow slit his throat, they got it all back. The Tyrells are now functionally the royal family of Westeros, which was their goal all along. The king himself is an entry point, a means to an end. They used Renly's armor to defeat Stannis, even though Renly was dead. And now they prepare to use Joffrey's crown to take power, even though they know he's a twin-cest bastard and they have already rebelled against him once. <laughs> In order to pull this off, the Tyrells have to pretend that they never crowned Renly and rose up against the Lannisters. But they can't ignore Renly entirely because they are here to propose that Joffrey wed Marjorie, and everyone in the room knows that Marjorie was, re- was Marjorie was wed to Renly first. So Garland refers to Lord Renly, <laughs> not King Renly. Oh no no no, he was never that, and says that Lord Renly rode off to war before the marriage could be consummated. It's so funny to watch Garland cut himself off with Lord Renly rode to war. Road to war against who, exactly? (laughs) Your new in-laws? The people in this room? Oh, that's inconvenient. So instead it's framed as though Renly was rebelling against Stannis the whole time. Garland also leaves out the little detail that Marjorie went with Renly as far as Bitterbridge, so there was plenty of time to consummate the match. But it really doesn't matter whether Marjorie is actually a virgin, just like it didn't matter that Renly was actually gay. What matters is what we all choose to believe. Yeah, and that that brings us of the real full introduction of the Tyrells. We saw them in Catelyn's second and third and fourth chapters in A Clash of Kings. But here we're starting to see the Tyrells as they're going to function in A Storm of Swords. And I, you know, this might be a little bit controversial, but they're my favorite political players in the Game of Thrones (laughs) because I love these conniving assholes so, so much. The same way that I love the Kettleblack brothers as being like just the worst pieces of shit, but just are just so smarmy about it. That's the Tyrells, but on a grander, more noble way of doing it. I I mean, I love them so much that we even have a whole patron episode titled Every Rose Has His Thorns about this fucking family. So go ahead and check that out if you're one of our patrons. They're all high sounding words and concepts and talking their way around inconveniences. I I love, like you, I just love the part where we went to war against them. Well, let's not get into the who was planning to kill who thing right now moment from the chapter. And similar to the Lannisters milking the optics of their victory to maximum effect, the Lannisters, the, the Tyrells rather, same sort of, the Tyrells start milking their turn cloaking to maximum effect here in this chapter. Like you were saying, the Tyrells own the Lannisters so hard in this chapter, infiltrating every aspect of the regime. And this is where I start my long 
differing with the general fandom belief that Mace Terrell is just some dunce. Sure, he plays a good dunce role every time we see him on page, but what I see instead is a clever political operator play-acting as a dumbass and aided in this by his mom, Elena. Let's fast forward a bit as Littlefinger provides us the information on what happened during the political negotiations with the Terrells. When I came to Highgarden to dicker for Marjorie's hand, she let her lord's son bluster while she asked pointed questions about Joffrey's nature. Now, most folks look... Now, most folks look at this as Elena having the real power here and asking the pointed questions. What I see is Mace and Elena doing a double act comedy routine with Elena playing the straight man role and Mace doing the banana role. That is playing the funny man, less educated dunce role in a comedy routine, but of course played in a political role arena. Now, to be fair, when we meet up with Elena in, a, in Sansa's first A Storm of Swords chapter, Elena does call her son an oaf, a puffish, etc. And yet that buffoonery leads to Mace getting what he wants almost every single time. As Elena says, the thought that one day he may see his grandson with his arse on the Iron Throne makes Mace puff up. But then to fast forward, even farther, when Mace is in the small council at the end of A Dance with Dragons, he's still extracting shit from the Lannisters even then, placing his own men into the gold cloaks and displacing Lannister toadies on the small council. Kevin Lannister thinks of Mace thusly in the epilogue. The more I give him, the more he wants. Kevin Lannister was beginning to understand why Cersei had grown so resentful of the Tyrells. But what makes Mace and the rest of the Terrell clan exemplars of feudal society is their ability to leverage their children into the highest offices in the land. Again, like I was saying in that Patreon episode, the Terrells are house fray with better PR and better people doing their PR, namely themselves. They use the same sort of dynamic to claw their way to a higher station in life. Rob has to take Oliver Frey as a squire, Arya has to marry Almar Frey, and Rob is betrothed to a Frey woman. The Tyrells play this game much better, getting Loras into the Kingsguard, Mace into the Small Council, and Marjorie betrothed and actually wed to Joffrey. And then, as soon as Joffrey dies, immediately wed and betrothed, betrothed and wed to Tom and Baratheon. So who was it that invited the Tyrells to take over the royal government again? Tywin is staging this scene as though he forged the alliance with the Tyrells, and he was the one who did the military work on the ground. But never forget, it was Tyrion who proposed the marriage pact between Joffrey and Marjorie, and sent Littlefinger to the Tyrells on that basis. He saw that opportunity and seized it right after Renly's death, striking while the iron was hot. He saved his cause, and never gets the credit. Tywin despises his son, and anyway, his incentives and worldview lead him to inflate his own role. Same reason he wears that fancy armor. The Tyrells don't exactly stand to gain from emphasizing Tyrion's role because he's not present and in power to be a useful ally. And Littlefinger certainly isn't about to share credit with Tyrion. So in this chapter, everyone else gets to soak in the applause for his good idea. It's especially galling to watch Cersei declare that of course Joffrey shouldn't marry Sansa, given that she argued otherwise when Tyrion proposed the match. It's equally obvious that the High Septon is talking out of his ass when he says that the gods are on Team Marjorie. <laughs> the reader is in the privileged position of seeing how the sausage gets made. We know the private faces, as well as the public, so we see the gap. Sansa tells us that Joffrey is only making a show of looking surprised by the proposal. She knows that because, as we gradually learn, Cersei told her everything that was going to happen beforehand. Why did Cersei do that? It's not as though Sansa gets a say in what happens to her next. Cersei makes that very clear to her. Cersei told Sansa what was coming because Cersei knows that Sansa's automatic reaction to her betrothal being broken would be joy. Of course it would be. Joffrey executed Sansa's father and had her beaten by his bodyguards. Of course Sansa would be happy to not have to marry him. But Cersei cannot permit Sansa to react that way. 
Instead, Sansa has to perform sadness. That way, it looks like marrying the king is still desirable, still something every girl in the kingdom should want. In other words, Sansa has to perform her younger, more naive self, the Sansa that would be devastated to have her royal betrothal set aside. That's the Sansa that fits the pageantry on display. Her true emotions, if they showed on her face, would give away Joffrey's monstrosity. Now look, everyone in the room knows that Joffrey is the worst. Even the Lords of the Reach, they clearly know. They've heard the stories even before Olenna uh, pumps Sansa for information. They know what they're dealing with. But their power depends on pretending otherwise, so Sansa must pretend too. Despite knowing that this was all arranged, Sansa is afraid for a moment that Joffrey will break character. She remembers the day that Illyn Payne beheaded her father. Joffrey didn't keep to the script that day. Joffrey clearly doesn't want to give up Sansa, as Dantos will say later in the chapter. He has been told he must wed Marjorie. He is resisting. Ultimately, though, he gives in. He tells the Tyrells that he is free to heed his heart, even though he has visibly done the opposite of that. <laughs> this is the king, right? The font of power, the triumphant occupant of the Iron Throne, his major rival removed, his foundation more secure than ever. And yet, even he responds to pressure. Even he is not free. As usual, Cersei puts it bluntly to Sansa. None of us get what we want. It is Tywin who makes Joffrey back down, but even Tywin is not truly happy with his life. It says something that Sansa is happier than she's been all book, precisely because she is being removed from the inner circle. Her old dream is being denied. She has learned it was not all it was cracked up to be. Yeah, and that, and that moment when Joffrey gives a sullen glance at Tywin before cracking is really clutch here. It reminds me of, you you quoted this earlier, but that, of Tyrion's memory of Tywin from A Dance of Dragons, where he says, no man is free, only children fools think elsewise. Joffrey's desire is, is not to wed Marjorie. It's one of this little shit's most relatable moments in the entire series here. He's getting bullied by a mass murderer to, quote unquote, do the right thing and has to very much not follow his heart. Now, my interpretation is that Joffrey doesn't want to wed Marjorie because there would be real strings restraining his psych psychopathic behavior with Marjorie, strings which currently don't exist with Sansa Stark. But it's relatable because Joffrey the King is a mere pawn of Tywin Lannister. Now, it's interesting to think about Tywin in this role as well. This is what he always wanted his hand of the king to be able to rule the realm without constraints. Given the context we learned about Tywin and Aerys' relationship, this became a large part of what led to the dissolution of their partnership. Ares wanted to be the king in name and practice, and he kept countermanding Tywin's decrees and orders the more, the more he kind of lost touch with reality. But here, Tywin has what he probably thinks is the perfect alternative to Ares, a kid who owes his very life to Tywin and will probably be very, very compliant. Unfortunately, as we'll find out in A Storm of Swords, Joffrey is much more like Ares than Tywin knows. And if either had lived longer, I imagine a similar dynamic of Ares and, and Tywin would have replayed here, this time though with Tywin and with, with Joffrey. Yep, it's uh, that gets cut off by the Purple Wedding, but you can already see that dynamic forming in the wake of the Red Wedding as Tywin wonders what it is he's dealing with. Moving on down the Pyramid of Power, we reach the other nobles hoisting Tywin and the Tyrells up on their shoulders. The lords of the Westerlands and the Reach have to be smoothly integrated. Kevon Lannister and Adam Marbrand alongside Randall Tarley and Mathis Rowan. Their interests overlap for now. It'll take work to keep it that way. They united around a common enemy, Stannis, but now he's been defeated. 
The marriage pact gives them an organizing principle, the promise of an heir from both lines, but they will all want a piece of the pie. And they're not alone. Those of lesser birth know just as well that chaos is a ladder and that civil war opens up a window for redistribution. Four in particular are highlighted here. Unlike the great lords, we do get to hear about their specific deeds, their acts of great valor on the battlefield. I think George writes it this way to emphasize that these are the guys who did the real grunt work of the battle. Of course, they wouldn't have even been there without Tywin and the Tyrells making a deal, (laughs) but that's the point. Despite Tywin's fancy armor, his arena isn't the battlefield, really. It's the Game of Thrones. The actual battling of the Battle of Blackwater was done by the likes of Lothar Brune, Josmond Peckledon, Philip Foote, and Willet. Here we see them rewarded for their efforts, and for me it's an ambiguous moment. On one hand, their lives are changing for the better. As with Davos, the dream of social mobility is realized. You prove your worth with courage, and that courage translates into material success. On the other hand, unlike Davos with his merciful gift of onions, this dream is only being realized through the violent deaths of others. Moreover, while some of the rewards take the form of elevated status, the heroes are also just given more weapons. (laughs) The message is clear, and it's a bleak one. Hey, thanks for risking your neck. Now get out there and do it again. (laughs) The irony is especially painful in Willett's case. He's the most humbly born of the four. He's being rewarded for defending his master, Harris Swift, one of the most useless members of the nobility, as we'll see in A Feast for Crows. Willett took such grievous wounds that he has to be carried in on a litter. Yet what do they give him? A spear, a hauberk, a helm. Things he may never be able to use again. You know, they would have served him better during the battle, not afterwards. Uh, Westerosi power runs on a martial culture, and this is the most realistic way for Willett to get ahead. Maybe that's why Willett defended Harris Swift so vociferously. Mm. Maybe he saw the chance to change his life, and he seized it, whatever the cost. He is sacrificed to the power structure, sure, but maybe the way he thinks about it is he has sacrificed himself for his family's sake so his sons could be knights. That's such a terrific point. I mean, these are minor characters. I did kind of gloss over them in the the synopsis, but there's an important thematic point that's being made here. As you you were saying, will it, as probably, possibly hoping to to, uh, heighten his, his stature and power, but then his kids are now all going to be brought up at Castle Rock as a squire and a page. So if the system can't chew up Willet and spit him out, there's always his sons in his place. In, in that context, you know, it kind of feels like a horror story with the Grim Reaper hooking a finger at Willet <laughs> saying, ah, we may have not have gotten you this time, but we'll take your children instead. And where are his kids going to? Oh, yeah. Casterly fucking Rock. Sure, it's a rich castle controlled by the richest family in Westeros, but it's also a castle run by unhappy people who like to do war crimes on the reg. These dungeons where people are tossed into and never seen again, that's a thing that happens at Casterly Rock. And this is also the castle run by those war criminals who like to do war crimes, especially to lesser knights, squires, and pages. This line from A Feast for Crows from one of Brienne's chapters where she's talking about um, where she's talking about how Podrick Payne, his upbringing, she, she, as, he, as she relates. The boys who guard the, foods, the foodstuffs always eat the best, Sir Lorimer liked to say, until he was discovered with a salted ham he'd stolen from Lord Tywin's personal stores. Tywin Lannister chose to hang him as a lesson to other looters. Podrick had shared the ham and might have shared the rope as well, but his name had saved him. So, if the war doesn't get Willet or his sons, there's always the danger that the castle itself will swallow his boys and kill them anyways. Everything Tywin Lannister touches dies. Hmm, perfectly put. 
You know, the songs Sansa used to love tell us that virtue is its own reward. You act heroically because you are a hero. But again, the truth is the inversion of that. You act heroically to become a hero because heroes get paid. Or at least they do sometimes. Running under the surface of this scene, unspoken but present, is the heroism of Podrick Payne. He saved his master, like Willet. He went up against older, stronger opponents, like Josman Peckledon. Yet he is not honored here, because no one bore witness to it. No one, that is, but us. Moreover, Podrick's heroism doesn't fit the narrative on display here. He killed a Kingsguard knight, one that had just betrayed the hand. That would ruin the shadow on the wall, the mandatory air of conviviality, papering over the ruin and folly of the Lannister regime. So Podrick is erased, just like Tyrion is erased. Tyrion is mentioned a grand total of once in this chapter, in Sansa's thoughts, and even then not by name, but as the Imp. Doesn't that perfectly sum up this whole Gilded Age? Tyrion is the true architect of this victory. Not only did he make the marriage pact, as I said earlier, but he used the chain and the wildfire to slow Stannis down. Without him, Tywin and the Tyrells would have shown up too late to save the day. Yet, if you were to read this scene cold, without knowing what had happened, you would never guess that he made all of this possible. The protagonist of this book has been disappeared before our eyes, his actions overwritten by those who burst in at the last second to take credit. Such is the power of narrative, weaponized for political control. Lancel, too, has vanished, even as he receives a lordship and a castle. The richest reward cannot heal body and soul, as we'll see in A Feast for Crows. In their place, the next quote-unquote hero to receive his rewards is Peter Baelish. We haven't seen Littlefinger for a while. Kudos to George for reminding us what a smug asshole he is. <laughs> you want to reach into the book and just punch him. Even in this gaudy environment, Littlefinger stands out like a peacock in mating season with his rose and plum couture. He looks so pleased with himself, as Sansa notes, despite him not having done anything heroic in the battle. He climbed the ladder a different way. Littlefinger squeezed his mission to the Reach dry for every drop of influence as we'll continue to see play out in A Storm of Swords. He was able to position himself as an invaluable information broker, linking all sides together while putting none of his own power at risk. In the process, Littlefinger secured the greatest reward of the Battle of Blackwater, Harrenhal, and the title of Lord Paramount of the Riverlands. He has gone from air to stones and sheep shit to the lord of the biggest castle in the realm, with one of the Seven Kingdoms doing him homage. His children and grandchildren could be among the most powerful people in Westeros. It's a dizzying ascent, yet as Sansa notes, it's purely nominal. The Lannisters don't even hold Harrenhal, and the Riverlords serve House Tully. They'll never follow an upjumped outsider like Peter Baelish. Sansa then worries that her family will be thrown down and forced to serve Littlefinger. And this moment captures the complexity of George's storytelling. Sansa is right that the post-Blackwater consensus spells doom for her family. She's just wrong about the source of the danger. Like Arya, she hopes that Rob will win his next battle like he's won all the others. Oh, he'll beat Littlefinger in battle too. What she doesn't know is that Rob's defeat won't be in the field. The Lannisters offering the Riverlands to Littlefinger is a sign that they have dark plans for Team Stark indeed. Littlefinger himself just isn't part of those plans. From what we can tell, he never intended to really fight for Harrenhal. He intended on using the title to springboard himself into a match with Lysa. 
From there, he has been able to seize power in the Vale, and will try and use the Sansa-Harry the Air match to seize power in the North. When Sansa thought that Harrenhal was an empty title, she inadvertently stumbled onto Littlefinger's plan. The title is all he ever needed, because his power doesn't come from castles and armies. It comes from debts, and this is a debt he can call in. Littlefinger is therefore able to escape the trap that claimed Jeno Slint, who thought the title alone would protect him. Littlefinger sees the title as a stepping stone to the next title, and the next. If you stop, you die. Multiple master plans are brushing past each other. Instead of ships passing in the night, it's like icebergs passing in the night, with so much hidden beneath the surface. All Sansa can do is try and read the signs. Same goes for us. There's such a dramatic contrast between the cynical, wheels-within-wheels scheming of Littlefinger and the humility of the hundreds of new knights crossing the city barefoot in simple garb. They've come to offer themselves up, body and soul, a shining ritual of purification that takes all goddamn day because there were only three Kingsguard left in town. So everyone's just like bored while this beautiful ritual is going on and just waiting to leave. War and politics have just have claimed all the rest of the Kingsguard. Everyone just has to sit there. The projection and the reality are interwoven and they can't be pulled apart. You talking about them like waiting around and, and having this award ceremony reminds me of when you're in Afghanistan, we had this big ass ceremony where we were like waiting around and everyone was getting awards and it took like two hours of standing out there in the motor pool. And I'm looking up in the sky wondering if the next rocket is going to come roaring in as we're doing this ceremony. Um, so a little bit of a different dynamic, but at the same time, all of us were super, super fucking bored there. And of course, in this scene, George can't help but point out that the knights who have crossed the city have done so barefoot with some arriving in the city with bloody feet. They have come humble, as you said, but it was a bloody affair to get them to their knighthood. And as demonstrated by the rewards doled out to those who are already knights, only more blood will carry them forward, as well as for Littlefinger. Now, we were talking earlier about the soldiers who did valorous deeds on the battlefield, and there's a one Sir Lothar Brune who allegedly killed 50-plus Fosways and captured Sir John Fosway. That seems quite the embellishment of what probably actually happened at the battle itself, doesn't it? But why embellish the battle record? Here, I think this is Littlefinger starting to burnish his reputation. He already knows he's getting Harrenhal, but he needs to surround himself with pieces to play the game. When we first meet Lothar Brun, he was a mere free rider in the service of Littlefinger as introduced in the Tourney of Nats from Sansa 1. But now he's a knight with a spectacular, probably embellished record. He's a storybook hero doing storybook deeds on the battlefield by killing all those Fossaway no-names and then chivalrously taking Sir John Fossaway prisoner. I hate Littlefinger, but game recognizes game here. Even in this embellished telling, the Fosway men-at-arms are just cleaved apart without anyone giving a shit, but Sir Lothar Brune spared the life of Sir John Fosway. And we do know that Sir John is indeed alive and was taken prisoner. Did Lothar Brune do so out of chivalry? Chivalry, rather? Probably not. The idea for taking prisoners on the battlefield in Westeros as well as medieval Western Europe was, you know, to kill the commons and take the nobles for prisoner in order for ransom purposes. So Littlefinger is crafting a narrative around his entourage and by extension himself, one that applies to his fellow nobles. He's now got a story champion of the battlefield in his service, a knight whose actions rival Sir Barristan Selmy, at the, and he's about to be granted the biggest castle in Westeros and a title that's even bigger. Before Littlefinger gets named to those things, we start to see his ascent, with him acquiring valuable assets and pieces for his future Game of Thrones. First a storied war hero, then a castle and lordship, then a paramountcy, then Sansa and a key to the north, then Lysa in the Vale, and then dot dot dot. <laughs> and then nothing when it all comes crashing down, mm -hmm. obviously. Can't wait for that. 
But as George puts it, now the coin is turned over, and the losers of the Battle of Blackwater are ushered in to bend the knee. I love that phrase, the coin is turned over. It captures what a close thing the battle was. It was a coin flip. If it had come down the other side, Stannis' Stormlords would be the ones parading around like heroes, while the Lannister Loyalists would be the ones forced to surrender or die. The winners of the battle have an incentive to act like their triumph was inevitable, but the line between victory and defeat can be a thin one. For the winners, George emphasized the splendor of their garb. For the losers, he does the opposite, drawing our attention to their wounds. Those who surrendered during the battle need only vow to serve Joffrey. Those who actively fought for Stannis are compelled to beg and plead. You can imagine both Joffrey and Tywin enjoying the ritual humiliation. This is an essential part of the shadow on the wall, every bit as much as Tywin's fancy armor. The Lannisters want everyone to see that those who defied their rule have been reduced to bowing and scraping before them. Yeah, and and here's the thing too, about the whole charade. If Stannis was here sitting the Iron Throne, if he was the victor at the Blackwater, he'd be doing the same exact thing here. Come on, guys. And we already know how he'd frame this, because we saw this before at Storm's End. My lords Bannermer are inconstant even in their treasons. I need them, but you should know how it sickens me to pardon such as these when I punish better men for lesser crimes. Now, Tywin might not be smiling here as all these Baratheons have to bend the knee and lie that they did treason again, the gall of it. But to Tywin and Stannis, this is the dream. Everyone parading in front of them, telling them how Tywin and Stannis were right all along, and they are so, so sorry to have wronged them, and please, please forgive us for our terrible, terrible treasons. I think, though, this is an interesting beat here with Tywin doing the thing that Stannis always gets credit for, forgiving former enemies so long as they're bending the knee to the correct king. I will note here that the terms offered at Storm's End were a bit more generous than Tywin's here. You can go home with your weapons, but you'll have to leave your pack horses behind so long as you surrender. But in the event that Stannis had to take the whole castle by force of arms, this was Stannis' threat to the garrison. The king pointed a finger at Sir Courtney Penrose. I give you fair warning. If you force me to take my castle by storm, you may expect no mercy. I will hang you for traitors, every one of you. Now, Stannis was saved from having to execute the Storm's End garrison thanks to Sir Courtney. Very mysteriously, who did it? It was an accident fell from a tower. But there's little doubt in my mind that Stannis would have hanged every member of the garrison if he had to take the castle by force. And yet, here in a circumstance where Tywin has all of these Baratheon prisoners who had fought to the bitter end in his presence, they have to make a profession that they were wrong and dirty, dirty traitors. And please, please forgive me, good King Joffrey and Lord Hand Tywin. And Tywin and Joffrey do. He forgives most of these guys. And then immediately rolls most of them up into his new army that Randall Tarley is taking command of and sends them off north in a storm of swords. Tywin sends Randall Tarley and his army of Reachmen and Stormlanders off to fight Robert Glover and Helmut Tart, those two characters that Bruce Bolton referenced in the Arya 10, Arya 10 coming for Duskendale. And as we're going to find out in A Feast for Crows, this is the fate of many of these guys who ask for their king's forgiveness. That is the king's forgiveness here in this chapter. Lord Randall had commanded Joffrey's army made of Westermen and Stormlanders and knights from the Reach. Those men of, who, of his who had died here had been carried back inside the walls to rest in heroes' tombs beneath the septs of Duskendale. This was the thing, and this is the moment that was the most poignant for me in this chapter, and it was the hardest, the thing that hit me hardest on reread. All these boys and knights and lords who bent the knee and tried to save their lives in Sansa 8 end up getting fucked over by Tywin anyways, whether at Duskendale or in the future against Aegon or against Danny and her dragons. 
Just like all the boys and knights and lords who bent the knee to Stannis, thinking that they were trying to save their lives from Stannis' noose, ended up getting fucked over by Stannis anyways at the Blackwater, or the Wall, or the March in Winterfell, or wherever Stannis annihilates himself at the end of the series. Everywhere you turn, you're getting fucked over by your liege. King's Landing, the Game of Thrones, is a mousetrap. And the point here seems to be, and ultimately, that you're going to die now or later within those confines. And so the question becomes, what kind of stand do you make? What do you throw yourself on the line for? Just as Tywin's horse broke the mood by taking a dump, not all of the Baratheon captives are willing to play along. Some declare that, that the Lannister court is corrupt, that Joffrey is a usurper born of incest, and that Stannis remains the rightful authority in the realm. Only now is it confirmed for the reader that Stannis himself survived the battle. His rise to power hung over a clash of kings. Now the possibility of his return is broached. He is once more like a shadow, the threat of future revenge. As during the battle, Stannis is framed as the embodiment of punishment, your sins coming around to lay claim to you. A scouring fire will come. As always with Stannis, this is an ambiguous moment. On one hand, you could feel hopeful that someone is still out there defying the Lannisters. It takes immense courage to speak up against the regime at cost of your life. I can't help but admire these Baratheon diehards. On the other hand, a scouring fire is not exactly hopeful <laughs> imagery. It's more likely to fill any observing third party with dread. What if I'm on the, the business end of that fire? So the catharsis of imagining these preening liars brought low is interwoven with the recognition of the bloodshed that would be involved. The ultimate takeaway from this part of the chapter, though, isn't about Stannis. It's about Joffrey and how he reacts to the Stannis diehards. He declares that he is the king, he has a monopoly on violence, and he makes a furious chopping gesture to symbolize that power and cuts his hand on the Iron Throne. <laughs> the symbolism has turned against him. As one of the Stannis diehards cries out, the throne has rejected him. This is a significant sign in Westerosi politics. Just look back at Magor and Rhaenyra. It's widely accepted that the Iron Throne can signal acceptance or rejection of its occupants. Now, is this literally true? Almost certainly not. Joffrey just got overenthusiastic. But it doesn't matter if the Iron Throne is actually sentient, any more than it matters whether Renly slept with Marjorie. What matters is what people believe. In the eye of the beholder, Joffrey just offered evidence for the Stannis case that he is unworthy. And this is the last we see of the victorious king in a clash of kings being ushered out of the throne room, bleeding, as he cries for his mother. The whole point of this event was to cement Lannister power, and now it looks shaky. Tywin steps forward to cut off the gossip before it spreads. He takes over the room, reasserting Lannister authority and declaring there will be no more follies. He sits on a step of the throne to do so. But that's a band-aid at best. Tywin has not solved the problem of Joffrey, which, as we'll get into in A Storm of Swords, threatens to unravel all of his hard work. And nearly does. If, they hadn't, if Joffrey had not died at the, at the Purple Wedding, you can't imagine the relationship that Tywin and Joffrey would have had. Now, now this is a much more minor point than the excellent ones that you were making here, sir. But I, I do love the world building, that the world building here grows through the narrative rather than vice, ver, vice versa in the world building uh, occurring first and then the narrative flowing from that. And what I mean is that George and his co-authors from the World of Ice and Fire were probably scouring the pages of his, no of his, of his novels to try and find the references to things that should be expanded upon and ran across the scene, with Joffrey cutting himself in the Iron Throne 
Syndrome, and Sansa thinking of a common saying without identifying who this applied to. And then later, they decide that Magor and Rhaenyra would cut themselves on the Iron Throne, signifying that they were not worthy of the Iron Throne, thus fulfilling what Sansa is saying here in Sansa 8. Yeah, it's something between a retcon and a hand wave, and that's okay, though. If it's only you nerds, which of course is not like me because I'm hashtag not a nerd, who will pick up on this? But it does show how George creates ambiguous world building that he can later fashion to something else as ideas come to him or as his backstory develops organically alongside of the novels. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think it's uh, he he's, he's weaving these signs and signifiers into the narrative. Of course, the people in universe have to react like this has always been a thing. Of course, it's always been the case that the iron that <laughs> if you put yourself on the iron throat. We've all known that for hundreds of years, even if it's something George came up with yesterday. So he has to. He, <laughs> the same thing happens with like Damon Blackfire and Storm of Swords when suddenly all these characters are bringing up the Blackfires. Yep, the Blackfires, this family we've all known about this whole time, and are only bringing them up now. Hmm, wonder why that might be. That's just the fun of the process, of course. So Sansa leaves the throne room happier than she has been since before her father's downfall. Even the food tastes better to her now. The whole world has been born anew for her, matching the ecstatic imagery Dantos used to describe their deliverance in the battle. She can't even perform misery properly anymore. She has escaped Joffrey, the villain of her life, the monster she dreaded she would have to marry. But then she arrives at the godswood to meet Dantos, and this time he has come to dash her hopes. He tells her that they're not done with her at all. Cersei isn't going to let the king in the north's sister go, and Joffrey can still wield a sexual power over Sansa, as a forced mistress instead of a wife. It's a grim reminder of how little control Sansa has over her fate, and by contrast, how little restraint Joffrey faces in terms of getting what he wants. There's another moment here when Osmond Kettleblack leers at Sansa when she passes by to go to the godswood. And Sansa interprets Osmond's leer as her not being successful at playing at being sad, but I think it's probably a little bit more disturbing than that. Freedom from Joffrey seems like salvation from Joffrey, but it's not. And it opens up all sorts of new venues by which Sansa can be endangered. When Sansa was Joffrey's betrothed, she was only able to be harmed by fellow nobles at the express command of the kings of the king, something we saw specifically and most horrifically in A Clash of Kings Sansa 3. But now that she's not betrothed to Joffrey, any protection, quotation marks, she had from her status as Joffrey's betrothed is removed. Now Sansa is fair game to the Kettleblacks, those brothers who, as Sansa notes, quote unquote, got along best with serving wenches as the gossip went. Osmond is probably thinking that Sansa is single and ready to mingle, and in a way, Sansa almost kind of resembles Paya and the other former Lannister servants at Harrenhal from Arya 10. Her status as Joffrey's betrothed offered her a form of protection, but now that Sansa has been openly declared the daughter of a traitor again, it's not just one big monster who can hurt her. Joffrey, being the big monster, can still hurt her, but the little monsters, like Osmond, like Littlefinger, who becomes a big monster, can can now also hurt her as well. Yeah, that's a great point. There's 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 no good way out because if you're married to a monster like Joffrey, no one's going to get in between you and him. But if you're not, then you're seen as open season by predators like the Kettleblacks. So there's just there's just no good options for her. These are the stakes by which the game is played, and those stakes have not changed simply because the musical chairs of power switched around, and now the Tyrells are in town. Throughout A Clash of Kings, Sansa's Not a Knights, Dantos, and Sandor have represented the two dramatic poles of her story, the possibility of redemption contrasted with the promise of destruction. 
Sansa, Sandor was on the brink of destruction when Sansa unearthed a kernel of redemption in him with her song. And now he has exited her story. So now Dantos has to wear both masks. He has to disabuse her notions of freedom from Joffrey, but also keep her overall hope of escape alive. So he has to kind of bring the cynicism like Sandor would while still stringing her along with all the fairy tale imagery. Dantos says her promised escape will take place during Joffrey's wedding. And as a sign of his good faith, he gives her a hairnet with some beautiful stones. As rereaders, we know that this is the murder weapon for the Purple Wedding, material proof of the conspiracy linking Littlefinger to the Tyrells. Dantos calls the hairnet magic, justice, vengeance, home. He wants Sansa to project all that wish fulfillment into it like a story and stop thinking. Sansa doesn't get to escape King's Landing, unlike Arya in Harrenhal or Danny in Karth. But like Danny, with her ships renamed for the heads of the dragon, Sansa's desire for home is being weaponized and turned against her. Dantos is under contract like anyone else, despite his claims of knightly redemption. He has woven Sansa into the web. She is metaphorically caught in the net he gives her. As we will see in her A Storm of Swords chapters, the beauty conceals death. It's a rose with thorns lurking underneath. Man, I cannot wait to get further and deeper into the Lannisters with roses, but they still have the thorns underneath. And it's interesting as we close Sansa's story in A Clash of Kings, how George is doing these art conclusions, because we've had three in a row now, and we'll have Theon's next week. As you were saying, Danny departs Karth, not having learned much in her journey, but she's making forward plot progression, at least in terms of changing locations from fucking Karth, because fuck Karth. Arya departs Harrenhal wishing to resume being a wolf. She makes a forward plot progression, but she's learned things along the way and stepped through a thematic and literal doorway into her future in A Storm of Swords. Sansa's interesting because this entire book, she hasn't gone farther than a few hundred feet in any direction from the Red Keep, except for one time when she went down to the docks to see Marcella off and then had a, um, a time on the way back up from the docks. So she's mostly been at the Red Keep this entire book's. And yet she's made huge strides in looking beyond the glittering surfaces. She sees the songs as striving for an ideal, but not representing the reality that she's experienced at court. Sansa has matured physically as a woman getting her first period and yet still has elements of her girlhood, girlhood, which of course are quickly fading away. But even by the end, when she finally thinks she's free from Joffrey, she doesn't realize that she's becoming a pawn again. Sansa was a hostage to Rob's good behavior from a Game of Thrones Sansa 3 onwards, and her quote-unquote good treatment was sourced in part to her being Joffrey's betrothed. She was a pawn for the Lannisters once, and now Dantos Hollard is setting her up to be a pawn again. But this time, it's for Creepyfinger. As soon as you're done playing the game, you think you're playing, then it zooms out and you were, you were a pawn in an even larger game. And of course, the catharsis with Littlefinger is is him realizing that he too can be can be manipulated and his desires too are kind of transparent. So anyone can become a pawn and anyone can become a player. I think that's what we're seeing unfold with, with Sansa's story going forward. So moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, we see Tywin's horse take a big dump in this chapter. And like his horse, <laughs> like his horse, Tywin will take a shit at the end of a storm of swords and he will not shit gold. Famously, that's the line when Tyrion crossbows him in the privy and Tywin releases his bowels as his final action. And despite uh, the famous rumors about the Lord of Casterly Rock, he did not in fact shit gold. So I think that's, that's a pretty clear link George is drawing, especially when you see how bad Tywin smells in the Feast for Crows. That's what George is saying. Tywin, on the surface, he's gold. In reality, he's shit. 
And it's a great metaphor that George uses. And it's something that he's built up from a Game of Thrones, as we talked about in uh, Tyrion 7. I want to say that was something that George was always planning and betting those lines forward um, in those early Game of Thrones chapters to foreshadow Tywin's death. And of course, here we have the horse taking a ship, which of course is representing Tywin's legacy. And of course, his body rotting and smiling at the end as well in A Feast for Crows is the, is the ultimate... Uh, the ultimate metaphor, which bears itself out when, of course, the Lannister regime essentially dis- dissipates, for for lack of a better term, when we get to, to Cersei tr- attempting to be like Tywin Lannister in A Feast for Crows and not really able to pull it off because, you know, if if all, in, in, my, in my opinion, the Tywin, if Tywin was still at the helm of things in A Feast for Crows, the Lannister Terrell regime would have fallen apart anyways. Finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, A Clash of Kings Sansa 8 closes Sansa's arc very similarly to A Feast for Crows, The Princess in the Tower, which is Arianne's final chapter in A Feast for Crows. Dantos and Dorne respectively place an object into the hands of uh, of Sansa and Arianne, a necklace here and an onyx dragon Sivest piece there in A Feast for Crows. Then they close by stating that the object symbolizes, symbolizes abstract concepts, vengeance and justice for both, and then, quote unquote, home and magic for Sansa and fire and blood for Arianne. That's a solid comparison. I think George George likes that the the large scale storylines boiling down to this kind of this intimate gesture of this is what's going to make everything. This is how we're going to remake the entire storyline from yep. here on out. That's just a very a very dramatic way to phrase it. I like that too. So moving into theory and discussion. So, so Littlefinger, obviously him getting the lordship of Harrenhal and being named Lord Paramount of the Trident will have a lot of plot, a plot dovetailing in A Storm of Swords with Lysa and the Vale and even further in A Feast for Crows. But the question is, what's the longer arc here? Is Harrenhal going to have any significance going forward for Littlefinger? And I think I have I have a theory, so to speak. It's it's one um, I've been working on for a while. And when I say I'm working on it, what it mostly means is that I have this idea that comes into my mind. In this case, this one came into my mind like a year and a half ago. And I just have not done a lot of the, the forward writing to, to kind of put this into motion as it stands right now, is is basically just a springboard for Littlefinger to marry Lysa. So now he's a high lord in the realm with a castle, the greatest cat, the largest castle in all of Westeros, and he's coming up to to Harrenhal and comes up to the Vale dispatched by the small council in order to bring the Vale back into the fold of the king's peace. But the interesting thing is that I think the I think Harrenhal will have some further plot dovetailing come the Winds of Winter specifically. Because I have this idea in mind that Littlefinger is not simply going to just take the Knights of the Vale into the north after he names Sansa Stark as Sansa Stark as opposed to Elaine Stone. I think what's what's likely going to happen is something like this. The Vale has to come out of the Vale Knights have to come out of the Vale in some way. And I think the best road is the Vale Road or the mountain road, the high road that leads them out. And that's going to feed them into the Riverlands proper itself. In the Riverlands, there's an interesting dynamic at play as we find out in A Feast for Crows and A Storm of Swords with the Brotherhood Without Banner still fighting against the Lannisters and the Freys as we find out in A Feast for Crows. We also have a number of river lords which are nominally sworn to the Iron Throne but are still they're, – they're ready to jump at the, at the slightest moment where the Lannisters look weak and the Freys look weak as well. So – we find out as well that there's also Northmen that are in the Riverlands too. So we have all of these factions, and this has led to this theory that there's going to be a, a second Red Wedding when Davin Lannister marries his Frey girl, likely taking place at Riverrun. But a lot of people wonder, is that like the end of the Riverlands storyline? And I don't think it's necessarily going to be the case. What I think is 
going to potentially happen is that Littlefinger is going to bring the Veil vale Knights with Sansa Stark in tow, show up at in the Riverlands and say, hey, here's Sansa Stark, the granddaughter of Lord Hostertully and also a Stark. I've got all of these knights and hey, let's go fucking take out the phrase. And at the same time this is happening, you have the Lancers being stuck down in King's Landing, trying to fend off Aegon, the sixth Targaryen, Blackfire, and not being able to support the phrase. So I had this whole idea in mind that there's a potential that the little that Littlefinger and the Vale Knights might be the means by which George ends up taking out House Frey. And I think that's a really good way of doing the storytelling. Now, is there any evidence for this taking place? Potentially. Uh, in the 2002 So Spake Martin, George was asked who was the Lord of the Riverlands, since the phrase in the River Run have yet have since the phrase have River Run, yet Littlefinger was named Lord Paramount. And George R. Martin says the Littlefinger is the Lord of the Riverlands, but that is going that he is going to run into trouble. I commented that Littlefinger is really powerful now that he has the Riverlands in supposed control of the Eyrie. George laughs and says that I need to remember that for all his power, Littlefinger has no army. I thought that was interesting. George also commented that I forget which Frey, Eamon, the phrase given River Run really wants to be Lord of the Riverlands and has dreams of having his father be his vassal. I thought that was interesting as well. So what I think is potentially going to happen in the Winds Winter is something like this, that the first blow against the Frey dominance of the Riverlands will be struck by the Brotherhood of Banners, the River Lords who end up rebelling against the Freys, and the surviving Northmen that are still sitting in the Riverlands. But I think the second blow, the final blow of the phrase, will come via Littlefinger and all those unblooded Veilmen coming down from the mountains. And how deliciously bittersweet will it be if it's Littlefinger who is the agent for vengeance against the phrase and brings down the phrase and quote-unquote liberates the Riverlands from the Lannisters before heading up north with Sansa, the Vale, and potentially an army from the Riverlands too. What I think it does really, really well, in my opinion, is that it fits the theme of George R. R. Martin in talking about vengeance and how people actually achieve vengeance and the methods that we achieve vengeance. Like, we really want the phrase to suffer and to die by the end of A Storm of Swords, right? No one sheds a tear when Merit Frey is hanged by, by Lady Stoneheart and by the Brother of Banners. No one sheds a tear that, that Edwin, is it, no, it's Peter, Peter Frey is the one who, is it Peter Frey or is it Edwin Frey is the one who's, who's hanged? In, Peter in the one who's hanged, yeah. Peter's, yeah. No one cares about them, but at the same time, do we want someone like Littlefinger to be that agent of vengeance to get revenge for the Red Wedding against against the Starks? Probably not. And yet, at the same time, Littlefinger was also the agent behind getting vengeance for Ned Stark and killing Joffrey, right? He was the one that set up the <laughs> whole alliance between the, between the Tyrells and himself and was able to get Joffrey poisoned and killed. So... Vengeance, I think, is, is something that George loves to explore in A Song of Ice and Fire. I think he has a very low opinion of vengeance as as a facet and as something that happens in the narrative. And I think him having Littlefinger do the deed of tearing down the, the, the phrase of the Riverlands, tearing down the twins, killing Lord Walter Frey, I think we'll probably feel a little kind of queasy about it. The same way that we feel queasy about Joffrey suffocating at the end of the Purple Wedding, having been done by Littlefinger and having that alliance worked out by Littlefinger. So... That is the general outlines of a theory that I have for what might potentially happen in, in the Riverlands come the Winds Winter that goes beyond the Red Wedding 2.0. And I think it makes some sense, but I'm open to interpretation and criticism of it as well. What do you think, sir? I like it. I like the uh, the idea of the, the Vale Lords getting involved in that because they've been raring to get in the fight against uh, Rob's enemies. They hate the phrase. This was established in A Feast for Crows. 
and it's it's a uh, easy with Sansa and her Tully colors for them to to arrange a land grab, and you know the, there's the Blackfish connection right there, and the Riverlands are kind of left politically open after the Brotherhood do their do their uh, you know after after they spread chaos because it's unlikely Stoneheart intends to rule the Riverlands in her own name. Um, I just uh, for me the the big question as we do with a lot of course theories about going forward is timing because there's just right. so many possibilities of, of of narrative branches happening and Harrenhal makes a lot of this harder because there's a lot of characters with, with a potential connection to Harrenhal. It's right in the center of the continent. So many characters' backstory is there or tan- tangentially connected there. And Harrenhal as a place George has left himself, I think, really open in terms of gardening. And you can tell because of how quickly the plot changes in and around the castle <laughs> that he's moving through a lot of possibilities. So I think this, I think, I think he wanted to preserve a little finger Harrenhal Riverlands connection in case he ever wanted to make use of it. I think at where where the story is now, and especially if he wants to get it done in seven books, I think he might have to pare it back and send yep. Sansa and the Vale directly north. But he's going he's gonna to have to decide what happens politically to the Riverlands at the end. And I think that's kind of an open question. Unless, you know, as, as, uh, as, as goofy as Uncle Edmure showing up on season eight of the show was, they had to kind of address what happened to the Riverlands because I think that is kind of left open. I think that's that's a good point. And, and you know, there, there has to be a, cons- a conservation of the narrative. Like George can keep expanding mm-hmm. it out and have this whole subplot of the Riverlands and then Littlefinger showing up. I. But he might end up doing it or he might having it paired back. Or, you know, people in the chat are, are saying that Chloe has the theory that the, the Veilmen go north via ships from Goldtown and show up sure, at White I Harbor. Can, I, I like think that. that's a that's a it's a really easy way to not an easy way. I think it's a very direct way for, right. for George to to get the Veil Knights into the north. But I also like think about the way that we're going to see the Riverlands as well in the future going forward. Like, is it the Brotherhood of Banners are probably not going to disappear, right? They, they have to show up in the narrative. At least the show would have us believe they go up to the north as well. I, I also think this is a good way to, and this is this is a weird point, but it's a good way too to have the intersection between Sansa and Sander again as he's on the Quiet Isle, and that's sort of close. I looked at the map one time, sort of close to the to the Mountain Road. So all you have to do is just have the the, the notification that the the veilmen are coming down, having Sansa and Sander inter- intersect again, which I think is as George is planning, as we talked about in Sansa's seventh Sansa's seventh chapter. But you know, a lot of these theories, I, I need to work out some of the kinks in them, and you know, they might not necessarily be true, but at the same time, they're still fun, and that's that's part of the point is 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 to have some fun with with theories as well as recognizing that. Theories are not the full extent of the fandom and the full extent of our what we get out of A Song of Ice and Fire or about media in general. Certainly not. But reading your thought processes is part of what got me interested in A Song of Ice and Fire in the first place. So I look forward to reading more of your theories endlessly. Well, thank you, sir. I really, really appreciate that. So, that, folks, that's going to close us out for, for Clash of Kings Sansa 8 and for Sansa Stark in A Clash of Kings. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at PortQuentin on Twitter or at PortQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Merrybolt, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Setsun Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bulan de Morgan. 
Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Narco-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads <laughs> to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy, Sydney of House Co., Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Sir Lady Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, and our newest High Lord, Lord Peter, P-E-T-E-R, not Peter, P-E-T-Y-R, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetose Society. So thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome to Lord Peter, not Peter. I love the name, and yes, thank you so much for, for your support, and thanks for joining us, Peter. It's, it's awesome. Not Petire, Petire. That's how it's pronounced in the, in the audio book. Petire, Baelish, which is weird. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings Sansa 6 as Theon is besieged by Sir Roderick Cassell, but is saved by his man, Reek? Wait, Reek shows back up? Wow, Theon, you got away with another one yet again. How did you do it, sir? As you can tell, it's a chapter with a lot of twists and turns to it. It's a great Breathless Theon chapter. Quite a tone shift from this one, but I can't wait to do it. I can't wait as well. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for A Clash of Kings Theon 6.